When you're lost in the darkness, look for the pod. Specifically, the Prestige TV podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're breaking down every new episode of HBO's The Last of Us. On Sunday nights, grab your battery and join Van Lathan and Charles Holmes for an instant reaction to the latest episode. Then head back to the QZ on Tuesdays for a deep dive with Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. From character arcs to video game adaptation choices, story themes to needle drops, we'll parse every inch of this cordyceps-coated universe. Watch out for mouth tendrils and follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud Anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Wednesday, February 8th. When I say the word documentary, I'm sure certain words and images pop into your head. Important or journalistic, maybe war-torn regions or corporate expose. Contrast that with reality show, which is probably a very different set of images. Trashy, soapy, a weird competition. For me, I just thought of The Simple Life for some reason with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie. Maybe that shows my age. My point is they've always been seen as pretty different genres. But then the streaming wars came along, the peak TV era. Netflix and the others figured out that documentary programming, especially about true crime or scandal or celebrities, was super popular, could eat up hours and cost less than scripted shows. Now it's truly the golden age of documentaries. Between 2018 and 2021, demand for them on streaming services more than doubled. And many of these docs and docuseries played more like juicy reality shows. Tiger King, The Vow, Cheer, Tinder Swindler, Hotel Cecil. A good one, that is to say, one that's sticky, could sell for up to $20, $30 million in a bidding war. But there's been a downside of that boom. And it was the subject of a great piece in New York Magazine last week called Reality Check. It looked at the degradation of ethics and standards in documentary filming amid the streaming wars. I'm quoting the piece here. It was a genre that had always existed in part to inform and enlighten and was now primarily a commercial product. It's not just more recreations and what they call Franken quotes, patching audio in to juice up a scene like something on The Bachelor. These entire endeavors now are more like reality with baked-in plot points, hero moments, even preordained outcomes. The sports docs are mostly made in partnership with an athlete's production company, that type of thing. Top filmmakers are definitely cashing in. Liz Garbus, who made her name on Oscar-nominated films like Angola, about a notorious prison, most recently directed Harry and Meghan for Netflix, a huge payday. Alex Gibney, who won an Oscar for Taxi to the Dark Side, has a studio called Jigsaw that is basically a documentary conveyor belt, working on dozens of projects at once for eager buyers, although the market seems to be cooling amid the great Netflix correction these days. It's created what this piece calls an identity crisis in the documentary film business. There's more money than ever, but it's come with expectations that, quote, didn't exist 
when the industry was closer in ethics and taste to public broadcasting than to Hollywood. It's interesting stuff. So I asked the author of that piece, Reeves Weideman, to come on the show and talk about this weird moment in documentary film, the best of times, the worst of times, why we should care about these ethics issues, and whether this boom could soon be a bust. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Reeves Weideman, who is a feature writer at New York Magazine and wrote a great piece this past week on the documentary film world. First of all, welcome, Reeves. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I read this piece with interest because it felt it felt to me like you were articulating what many in the documentary world have felt over the past five to seven years, which is it's never been a better time to make these kinds of films. And yet at the same time, there's been this degradation of, I don't want to use the word quality because that's a that's kind of a loaded word, but there's been this mixing of the tenets of documentary filmmaking with the economic interest and the ethos of reality television. And you very nicely get at that in your piece. Um, so tell me, tell me what you think the current state of the documentary film world is amid this unprecedented boom. Yeah, well, th thanks for saying that. And I think you you hit it on the head. I, I heard multiple people that I talked to quote Charles Dickens, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times over the past few years. And the best of times is obvious. There, there is more money um, in documentaries. It is easier to get money for particular kinds of projects, for particular kinds of people um, than it has, has ever been. Um, but at the same time, the, the industry is kind of unrecognizable to people. Um, it, it is in many ways harder to get to make the kinds of films um, that, that people got into to into documentaries for i mean these are these are on the one hand people who didn't get into you don't get into documentaries you never have to make a ton of money even if you were coming out to it from the sort of hollywood side of things um this was always kind of a a smaller more niche genre and i think just just the fact of there being more money and suddenly more attention from viewers um and and more attention from from the streamers kind of directing what they want has kind of pushed the industry just in in directions it it has has never had to go in and that's to eat up time i mean the streamers love this genre because it's less expensive than scripted yeah. and it can be highly addictive if the topic is correct or if you catch a genre uh, that people are interested in like true crime or celebrity or sports they can be very beneficial to the streamers but at the same time <laughs> i'm watching these things and i'm sure the audience is is doing the same and you're like this is not a, this is barely a documentary this is like one step above you know the dateline uh to catch a predator or yeah. you know something that would have been written off as a local news expose five years ago but is now presented as a documentary film on Netflix. Um, and you get into this a little bit in the piece discussing some of the outlines and some of the ways these projects are pitched. And th this, the most hilarious thing to me was this six-page, quote, story structure template, um, which had specific breakdowns of what the streamer needed or wanted to have happen at specific moments. And there's a quote saying 10% of the way into your documentary, your hero must be presented with an opportunity. 
For the next 15% of the story, your hero will react to the new situation. And it's like citing Gladiator and Aaron Brockovich as yeah. the template here. Uh, and, you know, is this... The question is, is this bad? Or does the audience kind of know this when they're watching and not really care? I think that was the most extreme example of what I think both what documentarians are seeing and I think what viewers are starting to seeing is, is that there's a formula to these things. And, and early on, um, the streamers saw documentaries as a way to win awards. I mean, you, if you go back 10 years, Netflix won its first three Oscars um, through documentaries and it's a way to get prestige. Now that's no longer really the case. Um, now it is the case, as you say, that you can fill hours with this and you can't fill hours by paying a documentarian to spend two or three years following a story that they're passionate about where they don't know exactly where it's going to go. You have to find things that are formulas that you can get made uh, in, in a year, in 18 months and, and schedule it out, much as you point out, as as Dateline would do with a season of television. So it's it's just kind of smushed all these things together. So I think that it's become hard for documentarians that they're, they're not able to make the things they want to make. And I think it's starting to come become hard for viewers. Uh, I've, I've talked to plenty of just friends. I mean, this is completely anecdotal, but you get two episodes into a six-part true crime series and you're like, well, I, I kind of know where this is going. I know what's going to happen. And, and I think people are, are going to start to get tired of that. The problem I have, and I've talked to executives who have said, yeah, this is a, an industry-wide problem and we need to figure out a way to better communicate this, is when you're looking at the morass of content available on your service, you don't really know the difference between a real documentary and something that is a quickie, one-off, you know, true crime expose or something that someone spent 10 years and considerable resources adhering to journalistic practices. It's all mixed up. So Tiger King is next to, you know, Navalny, although those are different services, but you know what right. I mean? Sure. Yeah. And there's no, there's no denotation here. I, I clicked on the, uh, Pepsi, where's my jet documentary mm -hmm. on Netflix. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. Cause I knew that legal case, um, from law school. And this was a pretty significant legal case about the kid who tried to enforce a contract against Pepsi for offering a Harrier jet in a commercial. Mm -hmm. And then I start watching it and I'm like, this thing is fucking silly. Like it's literally like a joke. They're presenting it as a joke. They're doing reenactments. They're having, you know, they're, they're not, it's not a serious endeavor and whatever. There's wide there's, there's lots of different types of content. And there's a quote in your piece saying, the notion that all documentaries need to take years and years and cost all this money to make is an old convention. But it just, as a viewer, it left me disappointed. The problem is that when Tiger King happens, then every streamer wants its Tiger King and they want 10 Tiger Kings and there's really only one Tiger King. And, and, and I think that is a that is a business problem um, that, I, you know, I, I would be curious how much how much executives actually care. You know, there it would be a way there would be it would be easy to for HBO Max to say, here's our here's our premium documentary. Here's our good documentaries tab. And here's here's the true crime stuff. Here's right. the, exactly. the scam stuff. And they they haven't totally done that. I mean, you can kind of dig down there and you can get to the like true crime with an, an ex-boyfriend murdering the girlfriend category probably, but they're not totally changing that. And, and in some ways, 
and maybe until sort of now-ish, they probably benefited from the fact that there is this blurring and and I'll be interested to see if that changes at all. There should be some kind of labeling like this adheres to the Documentary Association of America Standards for Excellence and Accuracy or something like that. Yeah, there's been some conversation about that. Um, mm-hmm. There's this group called the Documentary Accountability Working Group, and they're they're concerned with kind of all kinds of different issues. But there's been this talk of maybe you have a seal of approval at the at the end of things. Um, I think one thing that people talked a lot about when you when you talk about the the blurring between reality and documentary. Reality TV is a producer's medium. The producer is there. They are creating conflict. They are telling you that so-and-so said something about you, even if so-and-so didn't quite say something about you and, and you know, creating this drama. Um, documentary is an editor's medium. And, and the editor is more important even than uh, the director in a lot of cases. Some cases, they even get paid more. Um, and and And... By and large, people told me, you know, there's not documentary film editors are by and large a pretty ethical group. They they got into this kind of wanting to 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 make something real and good. Um, they are not, you know, by and large. I, I didn't find any huge examples of this. You know, totally twisting and distorting the truth. You do have instances like the Jinx, where you know they took a couple of comments from the same interview, switched them around, and it it created a, a more dramatic. Um, ending. Did it change the meaning? I think you can, you know, I don't, I don't know that it changed the meaning, but it certainly made for a more dramatic moment than, than what actually happened. Um, I think what, what people have started to say is that the, the power of the producer has started to leak into documentaries where producers are asking crews, well, can you get this shot? Can you go get this moment? Can you take the people you're filming over to this other event and kind of have them show up to create something? And, uh, you know, in some ways, like, Michael Moore, 25 years ago, was creating things all the time in his documentaries. There is a history of this, but you also kind of knew what was happening. Yeah, he was a stunt guy. You knew he was creating the drama there. That's not how a lot of these are presented. Uh, yeah, they're presented differently. And and I think that's that's where the danger seems to be happening. Uh, less in the editing room where there's a lot of potential for, for distortion, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And more on the front end of these productions, what producers um, in particular are, are kind of pushing for, um, either because it's what they know how to, how to work, um, because they come from reality or from other parts, or because that's the pressure they're feeling from, from above to deliver certain kinds of moments and to deliver certain kinds of stories. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. One of the things that this era has begat is the rise of the documentary factory. And these people are literally getting super rich on this. People like Alex Gibney and Liz Garbus and her husband 
mm-hmm. like th- they they have a rollout now. They they will do dozens of these projects at once, and that's not something we saw in previous era. Um, there's private equity that's been interested in these companies in a way that has not been the case in the past. Um, they're they're I, I I would not be surprised if one of these companies sold to you know one of the bigger streamers for like hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. How has that changed? the output here. Yeah. I, I mean, super rich might be an exaggeration. This is still documentary filmmaking That's true. at the end That's of the true. day. But, but, you know, typically you get 10% of the budget as yep. a fee, right? And if these are 30, $40 million documentary series, which is not out of the question now, you know, that's significant. And if you have a lot of those going at once, yeah, and I, th- I mean, I mean, look, um, it, you know, Imagine has a big controlling stake in in Jigsaw, and and you know, Ron, ha- so that Ron Howard and Brian Grazer are in um, are in in documentaries now. All the big players are in documentaries. All the big money is has seen what has happened. You know, if you want to think about like a private equity model for Hollywood, like oh, something that you can um, that you can make cheaply and and reproduce over and over and fill lots of content. Like it is sort of an ideal form. I think these companies that that have emerged, you mentioned Jigsaw, which is Alex Gibney's company, uh, Story Syndicate, which is Liz Garbus and Dan Kogan. You know, I, I think they genuinely want to make good stuff. And I think what they are finding to different degrees is that it's really hard to scale up making good stuff. Like, and, and that goes for documentation documentaries. You need a great story. You need the access and you need the time to, to find and make the great, the great story. This is, you know, scripted has its own challenges, but you get the script, you know, how long it's going to take to shoot. And that's it with, with a documentary, you, there's a lot of unpredictability um, to it. And so you have to find these predictable ways to make it a little bit predictable if you're going to employ people and run a company like this. And that's where you get the formulas and that's where you get you know, story syndicate saying, yeah, we'll do, we'll do Harry and Megan. We'll do the big celebrity yeah, exactly. documentary. Liz is someone I really respect and like yeah. she's directing Harry and Megan. Uh, but, yeah. And that gets to this other aspect that I want to talk about a little, which is the, the rise of the sports and entertainment doc that is yeah. produced by the subject of the doc. Yeah. And I, I just bugs the shit out of me. Whenever I see <laughs> that, uh, we, Craig and I were at Sundance. We watched the Steph Curry movie that is, produced in part by mm-hmm. Steph Curry and big shocker. He's a great guy in the documentary has <laughs> yeah. overcome a lot. It had a great college experience. Little guy he, changed the NBA. Totally. He still hangs out with his college buddies and they have a great old time watching March Madness every year. Like, who are we yeah. kidding? I mean, the audience knows this, but in a certain way, they don't care because they're getting access to their favorite star and the power being exerted by these major celebrities and sports stars are such that they know they can get away with it. Why would they cede control when they don't have to, and they can still get paid? Yeah, I think, I think this is the big issue. And, 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 and it came up over and over again, the, the sort of control that, that celebrities in particular now, now have over these things. I mean, you know, I think there's versions of it that can work fine. I mean, the last dance um, I, I thought was great. And, and Michael Jordan was, was an executive producer on it. Um, he got to look at everything. We have to take the filmmakers at their word that they didn't have to change anything. But, you know, that was also a film where it was had it had tons of behind the scenes footage that we had never seen before. It really actually did dive deep into into stuff that that and it brought um, perspective to something that if you're 
someone like me, you lived through all that. Exactly. And you got to see it with 20 years of hindsight and see how big of a deal it actually all was and how crazy it was. Yeah. Whereas a lot of these are now like, well, well, Michael got a doc. I mean, there's this, there's this Apple commercial now with Timothy, Timothy Chalamet. And he's like, well, shouldn't I have a documentary now? Right. Like, like that's what was going through every celebrity's head in terms of thinking that they control this. Oh, in music, it's the word in music. It's part of the branding apparatus. You know, you have a documentary to show your fans what you care about. And Taylor Swift is a Democrat and Billie Eilish cares about her family and like all the things that they want part of that. It's, that's not surprising to me. It's the prices that are being paid for these documentaries. The fact that Billie Eilish can get $20, 25000000 million for this branding exercise. How are the economics of this working? I think I mean you you probably know this even better than I do, but the you know the streamers want guaranteed hits. I mean we had this this quote from from a from a Netflix executive who pointed out you know a, a documentary that gets two three four million people to watch it doesn't do anything for us. We need twenty five fifty million people, and Billie Eilish has has many more fans than that. I think for the celebrities, it's it doesn't really do much for you. You're talking straight to your fans, directly to your fans. You're not going to win over anyone else. And I think you look at some of the great, you know, celebrity documentaries. We mentioned some kind of monster, the Metallica documentary from 20 right. years ago. You know, it's it's basically a, a filmmaker showed up and the band started going through therapy, like literal therapy with a therapist. And then they they let this this um crew um film them. And, and the thing that was powerful about that was not only that it made a great movie, but it connected with someone like me who, you know, I'm not a huge Metallica fan, but I watched that. And I'm like, I get this. I get this band. I care about them. And so it actually sort of expand the universe. Totally. You can do it. The, the ring, when the ringer did this doc series music box for HBO, where mm -hmm. I watched the Kenny G one and I was like, mm -hmm. holy shit. Kenny G is actually very likable. Yeah. And like it it was it was a little bit of a risk because it was outside of his kind of control and comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and it broadened out the audience. And I just think that there, there's so little appetite for any kind of risk in this in this media climate right now, where these stars know they can get paid and they just do what they can do. So the market right now, you kind yeah. of flick at this a little in your piece yeah. about how this boom in documentary film, which has basically lasted, I'd say seven years now, that mm -hmm. it may be kind of coming to an end, or at least the outer limits of the market may have come to an end. I mean, I saw at Sundance, there was a documentary about people who hold their breath underwater that Netflix bought for $20 million. And I was like, hmm, that's probably not gonna have legs. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, do you see that in, in your reporting? Did you see that the market is softening for this stuff? I, I mean, it's, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, in some ways I'm glad to hear that because one that, that, that film sold because last year, pretty much no documentaries sold out of festivals um, at, at all. And that's one of the big shifts in the market. Yeah. I mean, it didn't sell the festival. Netflix brought it to Sundance, but oh, it, brought it, it, there. it bought it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. Okay. So, well, there you go. Point stands. Mm -hmm. I, I, as far as I know, no documentary has, has sold out of Sundance. The smaller films are, are have not sold. Um, I saw a deal maker last night at, uh, at a, at a, restaurant in LA. He has two films. He says he's working on deals for both. So maybe we will see it, but you're right. There's not been that splashy big thing. I'm bummed that CNN has killed its documentary division. They I did know. some great stuff. I mean, Navalny was probably my favorite documentary from last year. Um, and you know, they did and like 
Three Identical Strangers. They did RBG. They did a bunch of these that were populist. I mean, they were making money in theaters, not, not three years ago. This was pre-pandemic, but still. Yeah, the, I mean, you you go back to 28, 2018 was like a year when there were multiple films that made into the teens $20 million um, on, on very small budgets. The, you know, as hard as it's been theatrically for, for the whole business, the documentary business in theaters is just gone. Um, oh, there yeah. was the the David Bowie film uh, this year uh, made $4 million. Prior to that, there was a, a widely loved film, Fire of Love, um, that made a million bucks. And and that's That that's one's it. great. I hope that one's great. I, I, might, I think I'm rooting for that one for the Oscar. And and you look at the Oscars and and there's still great films getting made. There's still amazing documentaries getting made, but mm-hmm. but the business for those documentaries, I think, is yeah, it's just is is even more challenging than it than it was before. Meanwhile, it's kind of gross out there, some of these like deals people make with talent. I mean, you get into it in your piece about literally documentary filmmakers trying to lock up the families yeah. of the women that R. Kelly was holding captive and trying to get them into a talent deal so they wouldn't talk to anyone else. You know, we obviously the famous example were the dueling Billy McFarlane documentaries yep. about uh, his escapades and Fire Festival. And, you know, the Britney Spears had competing documentaries at Netflix and Hulu. There's there's this still this kind of arms race that goes on with hot projects. Um, do you think that's going to continue? I, I got to think that the best topics, I mean, the, the new one is SBF. There's like yeah. 10 SBF projects uh, trying to get Sam Bankman free docs out there. Um, and, you know, anytime something big in the world happens, I feel like there's this rush and everyone trying to jockey to get their doc in the pole position. Yeah. I mean, I hope it goes away. I think it's, I think it's just bad practice. I mean, you think it's we, gross or do you think that's just the market? I mean, I think well, it's probably both. I mean, both, the, yeah. I think the market, the market is, market is gross. gross. I mean, <laughs> I, like, will it, will it go away? You know, it's like, these, especially these kinds of documentaries, it's, that's journalism. Like you're, yeah. you're telling an important news story. This is, you know, this is no longer telling some weird quirky, you know, exploration of, of human life. This is, this is news. And, and, you know, it, it's not, it's not really that, that journalistic ethics or journalistic rules need to be followed all the time. But I think, the idea that you're blocking other people from from talking to sources that you're you're sort of locking people up i think it just kind of goes against the ethos of everything and and i think i think at the end of the day i mean you look at the you know i i, I don't know you look at the firefest um docs i mean certainly in hindsight i look at the one that didn't pay billy mcfarland as as sort of the more honorable one the better one was it was it worth I watched it both. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed both. Um, the, the, the point is, from a streaming service perspective, I don't think they care. They don't care. A couple of people mentioned to me. I think this question came into the public consciousness through Harry and Meghan, just because of the fact that they are so scrutinized for everything, and the fact that they got paid all this money, and that they clearly had some level of of control over this. So, but I don't think that moved the needle at all um, in in terms of people, you know, more broadly feeling like um, this is a problem. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, Liz Garbus is not going to suffer for having kind of sold out her credibility a little to do Harry and Meghan. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think, I think there's ways in which, you know, I watched that and I enjoyed it as well for, for, sure, what, for it what it was. And so, right. so we're going to, you know, all these, it, it, it's going to continue being messy and murky. And, and I don't, you know, there's, there's no way to draw clear lines on a lot of this. And so I think because of that, 
Unfortunately, the business is always going to lean on what is good for the business, um, which is not always what's good for the story, which is not always what's good for the documentary world or or anything else. All right. Reeves Weideman, thanks very much. Your piece on New York Magazine's website is called Reality Check. It's a great read. Check it out. Thanks, Matt. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, did you see what AMC Theaters announced yesterday with respect to their seating prices for theaters? I have not. I'm in Phoenix for the Super Bowl, so my entertainment <laughs> news is is lacking this week. So AMC is going to divide up their seating in their theaters into three sections. One is going to be standard, one is preferred sightline, and the other is value sightline. So it's like tiered pricing based on how good your seat is. Yes. It's an excuse to charge $2 more to sit in the center of the theater. But are they also charging then less for the worst seats? They are. However, uh, it's unclear how many of those seats will be charging less, probably just the front row. So if you really want to see a movie for $2 cheaper, you can sit in the front row and, uh, and, have some neck problems after the movie. Um, but, and and for the majority of the seats, it's going to stay the same. And you can get out of this by being uh, one of their stubs, club members, or for movies before 4 p.m. But it's basically a chance for them to upsell and charge more for certain showings that are crowded. And if you want to sit in the middle, you got to pay more. And my prediction here, my prediction here is that this will work for certain movies, but for the vast majority of movies, it is not going to work. Well, you know, this isn't exactly a new a new thought here, but movie theaters are often not very crowded. So how are they going to enforce me sitting wherever I want to sit when I go to an empty movie theater? Good, good call. You've already figured out a way around this. So congratulations. Um, <laughs> like, you're going to go value sightline and then sneak up to uh, the regular sightline area? Well, I went to Babylon and there was like, you know, 15 people in the theater. Like, is there going to be a security guard making sure I sat in the seat I paid for? Maybe. Maybe you get a big, you know, scarlet value printed on your forehead so that they can tell that you're not supposed to be in the regular section. I don't know. I mean, this is really just for the big movies that have sold out showings where they can charge more for something that you got for a regular price before. And it's part of, you know, AMC is facing really tough economics here. A lot of people think they could even go bankrupt this year. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Listen, we've, we've been talking about variable pricing in movie theaters for years now. And the studios have always rejected that because they don't want different prices for different movies because it will potentially make movies seem less valuable than others. Um, we saw this past weekend for 80 for Brady, they kept matinee prices all day to try to lure more old people into the theaters and it worked. I think it's a good idea. I like variable pricing. Yeah, the 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 downside is is once you start doing that, it's really tough to charge people full price if they had gotten a deal before, but I agree with you. I think they got to start getting creative on this stuff and figure out how to get people into theaters, especially at unconventional or not normal times so that everyone doesn't try to see a movie on Friday and Saturday night, they spread it out more. And this could be a way, if you know you're going to have to pay a couple bucks more to sit in the middle of the theater when it's crowded, then maybe you would go on a Tuesday night instead of a Friday night. 
They should just start a GoFundMe. I would have donated to Babylon. <laughs> yeah, you you and me and nobody else. Uh, all right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Reeves Weideman. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.